Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. My name is Rosemary Eldridge, and I'm the Director of Communications and Programs here at the CIC. Um, on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, our wonderful director, Father Charles Chulos, um, and our wonderful co-sponsors, the Thomas More Society of America, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is with us tonight, in person and online, for tonight's event, The Gift of Religious Liberty in Today's Landscape, with Archbishop Joseph Kurtz. Please use the note cards on your chairs to write down any questions that you have. We'll, I will be collecting them throughout the lecture, and we'll be asking them uh, during the Q&A portion. And now I'd like to give the mic to Eddie O'Connell, who will be giving the Archbishop's formal introduction. Thank you again, and enjoy the lecture. Welcome. The Thomas More Society of America and the Catholic Information Center are proud to co-sponsor this presentation of remarks by Archbishop Joseph Kurtz on the gifts of religious liberty in today's landscape. Uh, the mission of the Thomas More Society of America is to acquaint and educate our members and the public about the principles, ideals, and standards of personal conduct exemplified in the private and public life of Thomas More. A lawyer, a scholar, a learned wit, author, humanist, theologian, justice of the peace, envoy and diplomat, a devout father, educator, and family man, high steward of Oxford University and Cambridge University, member of parliament and speaker of the House of Commons, chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, member of the King's Council and Lord Chancellor of England, a man imprisoned and put to death for conscience sake, a saint. The topic of Archbishop Kurtz's talk to us tonight is in keeping with the mission of the Thomas More Society. And Archbishop Kurtz is well suited to speak to us on this important topic. As for the last two years, he has been the chairman of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Religious Liberty. Archbishop Kurtz's chairmanship has coincided with consequential uh, issues affecting the religious liberty of Catholics as well as other Christians and citizens of conscience. We're eager to hear his remarks. By way of format, um, as, after Archbishop, Archbishop Kurtz's talk, we'll open the uh, session uh, to questions, uh, and we'll ask you to write your questions on, on, on these note cards, and we'll try to get to them all. And, and as there are other issues pressing the church and society, you're certainly welcome to ask questions addressing other topics. It's now my honor to introduce our speaker, Archbishop Kurtz, who was born and raised in Mahoney City, Pennsylvania. Uh, close enough? Close. Okay. I took a stab at it. Um, one, of the, one of the five children of George and Stella Kurtz, he was ordained as a priest of the Diocese of Allentown in 1972, having earned his bachelor's and master's of divinity degrees from St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia, as well as a master's degree from the Marywood School of Social Work in Scranton. Archbishop Kurtz served as a priest of Allentown for 27 years before being appointed in 1999 by St. Pope John Paul II as the Bishop of Knoxville. In 2007, Pope Benedict XVI appointed then Bishop Kurtz to be the Archbishop of Louisville, where he continues to serve as the principal pastor and teacher of the more than 200,000 Catholics in 24 counties of central Kentucky. Archbishop Kurtz has served on numerous boards, including the Board of St. Charles Borromeo Seminary, the Board of Trustees at the Catholic University of America, the Board of, Board of Directors for the Institute for Priestly Formation at, at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. He also serves as a member of the Council for the National Catholic School of Social Service at Catholic University and on the advisory board to the cause for Archbishop Fulton Sheen's beatification. Archbishop Kurtz served as Vice President of the USCCB from 2010 to 2013 and President of the Conference from 2013 to 2016. In 2014, Pope Francis appointed Archbishop Kurtz to the Holy See's Congregation for the Oriental Churches. Archbishop Kurtz, welcome to Washington. And thank you for speaking to us tonight. Thank you, thank you, Eddie. 
Well, well, Rosemary and Eddie, thank you so very much uh, for the warm introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with all of you tonight. And I understand we do have uh, this hour in two parts, one for me to give a presentation and then for a chance for some question and answer. I'm happy for that. Uh, let me begin by, by talking about the, the state from which I come, from Kentucky. Uh, we have a little horse race in that state every year. Some of you may know about that. And uh, about three years ago, I, I went to the Kentucky Derby, and I, I go in my collar and uh, got on an elevator to go to my seat. And a man looked at me, and he looked at the collar, and he said, uh, Father, are priests allowed to bet? And I said, well, I think we're allowed to bet, but we're not allowed to win. <laughs> and like this, he said, you know, I believe I may have a vocation. <laughs> now, that's, I know others have said this. That's actually a true story. And I say that because uh, both the Catholic Information Center, for which I'm very grateful my first visit, uh, really calls forth in many ways vocations, but it's especially the lay vocation. So it was uh, eager I was eager when, when I was invited to come and be with all of you. I also want to give kudos uh, to the Thomas More Society of America. Thank you for your, uh, your uh, faithfulness in seeking to live the virtuous lives and, and the, the courage that we so much associate uh, with uh, St. Thomas More. You know, in many ways, I'd, I'd like to talk to you first about uh, not only your dedicated lives, but also... Uh, the difficulties in bearing witness to the gospel when we are dealing with, in this case, such a public awareness of the failures of clergy and bishop, and that's made that a challenge not just for me but also for each of you. And um, when I've talked wherever I could in Louisville, especially with uh, the news of Archbishop McCarrick, and, and his violations of chastity and violations of power, and then the inactivity, the, the gross inactivity of, of his not being found and, and made present for so long. I, I said that there were three emotions that I felt. I felt anger, I felt hurt, and I felt embarrassed. I felt angry uh, because of the, the obvious assault, not just on uh, on the victims, but also on, on the vocation that he has. I felt hurt because, at least in Louisville, and probably you have been too, for the last 15 years we've worked hard in trying to ensure uh, that, that young people, that priests, that, that kid, children uh, would be safe and that, that would live a virtuous life. And, and quite honestly, I was embarrassed. I think... Uh, Cardinal Dolan said it well. His, his mother, who's in a nursing home in St. Louis, said to him, she says, you know, I hate now to go into the, into the dining room because I don't know what to say. So I mention that, and I, I of course, would be, be, be very open to, uh, to hearing uh, questions or remarks that you might have and for me both to listen to them and then offer whatever reflections I can make. Uh, now, that being said, there's the question, is this also a good time, though, to talk about uh, the gift of religious freedom, and I think it is. And so I still would like to talk first about the gift of religious freedom, but then be open to any questions that, that you might have to say. Um, this is, a, 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 we still have many, many challenges, and, and the key, as I see it, is uh, the key is uh, having us become informed and engaged uh, on the heart of what it means to have a gift of religious freedom, specifically what it means to be a human being, which we can be defined in many ways, but I think that, that one of the deepest ways, and it's so much in keeping with Thomas More, uh, is the capacity to seek the truth, the capacity to seek and find the truth. So what I would like uh, to do tonight is talk a little bit based on, on really the the statement that the U.S. bishops made on religious freedom, our first, most cherished freedom, it begins with a sentence, we are Catholics, we are Americans, and we are proud to be both. And I'd like to give three reasons why I believe uh, we, we still are proud to be both, American and Catholic. And it has to do with religious freedom. The first 
I'll talk, and what I'm going to do is something I was taught when I was first preaching. They said, when you give a homily, tell people what you're going to say, say it, and then tell people what you just said. So I'm going to follow that little path. And here's what I'm going to say, the, the three points. A rightly ordered politics needs to be undergird, not by raw power that imposes, but rather by the process of seeking the truth together. So I'm going to talk about that notion of seeking the truth. Secondly, I'd like to talk about the fact that religious liberty is important because we're called by Jesus Christ to inspire a culture. In other words, that our faith is not simply something very private. It's personal for sure, but it is personal but also public. And then the third, uh, since I'll talk about the witness and one of the main witnesses that we give within our society is the way we serve other people. I'm going to talk about what it means with religious liberty to create space so that uh, people can serve with integrity of faith. That when they do serve, they don't have to leave their faith at the door. So there are the three things. Let me, before I do that, say a little bit about the landscape, things that you probably already know. We're talking tonight about the United States, but for sure we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the threats of religious liberty throughout the world and the grave threats that, that are not spoken about uh, enough within our society. Uh, just think of Nigeria since 2009. Boko Haram has destroyed over 200 churches, has killed over 20,000 people. That's 20,000 people uh, in the Middle East where Christianity was born. There's the possibility that Christianity will be virtually wiped out. And then if we look at the situation in uh, Myanmar, the Rohingya suffered brutal and violent persecution. So as we're looking at religious liberty, we're mindful that uh, the landscape has to include the terrible assaults that are happening in different parts of our world. Even though in the United States it's less intense, nevertheless, we need to be engaged as faithful citizens. Just think of what I would call the high-profile areas. You, you recall that for the last seven years, there has been uh, the question of the HHS mandates. When the Affordable Care Act was begun, the HHS mandate was a requirement. Uh, our poster child, if you will, has been the Little Sisters of the Poor who've been very courageous. I'd like to say uh, the last thing they want to do is sue anybody. All they want to do is serve the poorest and the most frail of the elderly, but they want to do it with an integrity of their faith. So that's, it's, it's now less intense. There is, of course, the issues with regard to marriage as the union of one man and one woman and the masterpiece cake shop case that was just heard uh, uh, in the Supreme Court uh, gave some direction for, for the ability to carve out within our society the ability to serve others but serve with integrity of faith. And something that I'll mention a little later, uh, the issue with regard to uh, institutions or agencies that are providing adoption or foster care. In, in, in Allentown, as a priest for more than 25 years, I served in Catholic charities. So dear to my heart is the work of foster care and adoption. And we're talking about uh, foster care agencies that believe children should be placed with a married mo a mother and father. And do they have a right and an ability to continue to exist? Let's talk, though, they're what I would call the landscape of the higher-profile issues. If you read the paper, you're going to say, we already know that. What's one of the other things that's a little deeper? A little deeper is the steady movement within our culture away from religious institutions. And because of that, we have people who are thinking of themselves, even those who are involved in religious practice as seeing faith as something very private. And if we begin as a nation to see ourselves as uh, picturing our faith 
as being something that needs to be kept private, that there can't be a, a, a public dimension, if you will, without somehow being accused of, of bigotry, then what happens is there is a highly individualistic notion of faith and any expression of that faith can run the risk of being uh, an attempt to, uh, to want a license to discriminate. So in many ways, I think the biggest challenge within religious liberty today or religious freedom is not necessarily the direct opposition. It's there to our efforts. But I would say also being mindful of the steady erosion of people seeing religious freedom as being something of great value. Now within that, let's get into those three points that I said earlier. What is a rightly ordered polity or political life to look like? Is it a life in which basically my truth is as good as your truth and therefore the way to uh, succeed would be almost raw power? Or is it, as I think, a Catholic vision of, of, of the, the human person and of society would say that uh, religious liberty is, is rooted in the dignity of the human person, a vision of dignity that um, many of you may be familiar is captured very well by a declaration of the Second Vatican Council that comes back. It was actually issued in December of 1965 called uh, Dignitatis Humanae. And in that document, it said that the human person has dignity because she is created in the image of God. And, and being created in the image of God means especially the capacity, in a sense, to seek the truth about God, about our life, and about the meaning of life and the meaning of our serving others. In other words, how do I make my time on earth worthwhile? What really is the truth? Um, if, we, if we look at that, I think most people in the United States would say, well, I kind of agree with that. I, I, I do agree with the fact that we should be free to, to build our lives around what we believe is truly uh, and, and deeply our own. In other words, we should have a political culture to respect freedom as possible. Our problem, of course, is that when we begin to lose this notion of searching for the truth that is, I think, at the basis of our Catholic vision of society and of the human person, then we begin to degenerate into a power-seeking for the purpose of not so much proposing a vision to others and entering into dialogue civilly, but rather imposing our will on another. We might say this, that politics is really at the service of truth-seeking. And so the more you and I can talk about what does it mean to seek a true path? What does it mean to seek something that is not just my truth or your truth, but has some objectivity to it? That's the first thing I'd like to say. I, I will say this, too, that I've been studying a little more about Viktor Frankl, and many of you know Viktor Frankl or know of him. I read Man's Search for Meaning back in the 1960s, and uh, he began what's called logotherapy, in which he talked about uh, uh, what it means to, to build your life on a meaning outside of yourself. Very different than saying, I'm going to create my own truth. So that, that would be, I think, the first basis of why religious freedom is important, is because we should be about seeking the truth and not simply imposing through power, our own vision. Secondly, we're called to inspire a culture. Um, a Christian vision, this fits very much into the vision of, of St. Thomas More, is a vision of human flourishing in which we come with a passion about the vision that we have, not to impose it on others, but rather to encounter others, even those who don't agree with us, and to enter into a dialogue. Uh, the mandate of Jesus Christ to announce the good news then is not simply for us to talk to people one person at a time, but it really is to inspire a culture. 
in many ways, I remember in, in my, my uh, social work training hearing that uh, seeking the common good and contributing to common good is a civic duty. And so what we're talking about in this second part of religious liberty is the notion that, that not only is it a faith conviction for us to be able to, to inspire a culture, but also it is actually a civic duty of ours. I, I think back, of course, in our own history as a nation to the work of Archbishop John Carroll. I think more recently to the way in which Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., saw his faith as impelling him to bring a vision that was for the common good. Uh, it was three years ago, actually to this month, that Pope Francis came to Washington, D.C. It was in 2015. I remember when he went to the White House and uh, actually spoke about religious freedom. I remember some of his words. He said one of, I quote, one of America's most precious possessions is religious freedom. He went on to say, and, and I'm quoting again, he urged us, quote, to be vigilant precisely as good citizens, not necessarily only as people of faith, but as good citizens, to preserve and defend that freedom from everything that would threaten or compromise it. It was a very emotional time to be with him here in, in Washington, D.C., um, I remember his visit to the Little Sisters of the Poor, and I was so pleased with the symbolic nature of that. I was so happy that he visited, but also the symbolic nature, because they've been struggling so much uh, with religious freedom. Uh, I was happy uh, with helping with, with a lunch in a shelter here in Washington, D.C. And there was kind of a deep sense that, uh, that I felt after he left of, of ensuring and renewing a responsibility in our nation. You know, at the heart of all these efforts is a vision that we uphold, envision as Catholics on who is the human person, and we say dignity from the moment of conception till natural death. We say that the, the dignity of a person is not based on how much money they earn or the quality of, of their lives or even the decisions they make, that there is a basic dignity in that person. That's a vision. We have a vision of family and the gift of sexuality. And we say that the family is really the building block of a healthy society. And that vision is not just for Catholics. It's meant to inspire a culture. We talk about the need to serve the common good and to be welcoming of an immigrant and a new family. These are visions that we do not impose but rather we propose, but we do so with passion. Now, the third aspect of religious freedom I'd like to talk about is the freedom to serve others. In some ways, one of the things that we've been working on a great deal, especially when there are debates about values within our culture, is to say that Religious freedom means that people who are serving others need space to be able to serve others with integrity. I mentioned earlier the Little Sisters of the Poor because I think they, they illustrate that issue very well, that when the HH mandate began, they were given really an impossible choice. They were given the choice either to give up the ministry that they were involved in or pay heavy fines, terribly heavy fines, or in some ways to give up the very rationale and the very engine that drove them to serve others, their faith. And so uh, religious freedom is about creating space even with people who disagree with uh, the priorities and the visions that we have so that people can be served and people who serve can do so with integrity. In many ways, uh, I'll come back to this issue of placing children in, in adoptive and family, in, in foster care and adoptive homes. Um, you probably know the statistics that we're told that there's over 400,000 children in the foster care system in the United States, that 
Over 100,000 children are waiting for adoption. We know that the opioid crisis is increasing that numbers daily. And yet, in the midst of this, there's the targeting of faith-based child welfare providers who are targeted simply because they want to provide the care to others uh, within the vision of their religious convictions. Think about what's happening. Illinois, Massachusetts, California, the District of Columbia. These are service providers who have a track record of excellence in recruiting and assisting foster families uh, who are being asked either to give up their own vision of what family is or to give up providing care. Uh, Catholic Charities, Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia is fighting that very fight to continue to provide this kind of care. Um, One of the things that you and I may be aware of, and that is that if we look at the fabric of the care being done, it's these very institutions that are actually excelling in uh, recruiting families. We're doing this month a foster care recruitment program within the Archdiocese of Louisville, but precisely to find families who we believe would, would be, be positive in being able to provide uh, a care with a, a married mother and a father. In Arkansas, there's a program called The Call, which is responsible for recruiting about half of the foster families in that state. So my point here is that it really makes no sense at this time in our history to reduce the number of agencies that are providing this care. We call it put the child first. In many ways, the the work that we're doing in providing pastoral care is part and intricately uh, linked with the vision that is impelled by our faith. So the Catholic Church became involved in education precisely because of the call of Christ, the Word made flesh, to pass on the gift of faith. The Catholic Church became involved in hospital ministries precisely because of Christ's call for healing. Intimately linked with the service that is being provided is that vision of service. You might say that that service is in the DNA of our church, but so is the recognition of the visions that we're talking about. I'll say a word about uh, the notion of government partnerships, if I could. Much of my work when I was in Catholic Charities work was seeking true partnerships between the government and the church in providing uh, care, foster care, and and many different programs. In some ways, uh, it was Pope Benedict who said in Deus Caritas Est that there is a distinction between the church and state, not a full wall of separation that does not permit healthy and good working relations. And that distinction is is really emphasized in Dignitatis Humanae when the church has has said in that document that... uh, that while all people should be immune from coercion, government ought indeed to take account of religious life of citizens and and show it favor. So whereas there's no theological reason why in a society the church and state cannot work together in in good partnerships, um, there's nothing that is in the the non-establishment of religion that entails the fact that a church cannot, or a religion cannot play a part in in religious life and in public life, knowing full well that there cannot be ever the imposition of a vision on others. In some ways, uh, the work that we're doing is much richer because of public and private partnerships. I've given you just a little bit of an overview of the three reasons for uh, religious liberty to be important within our nation and within our church. Uh, Let me give you a little infomercial that those of you who would like to know a little more about this could actually um, text the word freedom to 84576. That's 84576. I tried it this afternoon and it works. 
and you'll be able to hear more information about some of the topics that I mentioned today. What are we grateful for? We're grateful for the opportunity to live in a nation that seeks the truth rather than that imposes the truth on others. We're grateful to live in a nation in which we can inspire a culture by our public living of our faith and witnessing our faith. And we're grateful to live in a culture in which we can work to provide space so that people can serve other people without having to give up their convictions and integrity of faith. Thanks for the chance to present this to you. All right, does anybody have any questions they have on cards that I haven't collected yet? Our first question is, is democracy the best form of government that we can hope for naturally? If not, what would be a more rightly ordered government? Well, uh, Rosemary, thank you. You, you probably, I think it was Winston Churchill who said something like, uh, democracy is the worst form of government except all the others. So uh, in, in some ways, I, I don't think... Uh, we can say that, that uh, at least if I speak simply from a theological vision, that the theological vision necessarily uh, canonizes a particular form of government. But I can say this, that if we look at the flourishing of, of uh, dignity of the human person, I think there is a greater chance for the dignity of the hu human person to flourish within a democracy, rightly ordered, and especially in a democracy in which the participation of the people is given a, an opportunity. So uh, it's not a the I don't think it's a theological thing that we can say democracy takes the preference, but I think we need to look at, at that. I was with a, a group recently that, that actually talked a little bit on, on Monday about the fact that if, if we look at those parts of the world where uh, um, religious imp uh, repression exists, they tend to also be the areas where cultural civilization is not flourishing. They're even the places where economies are not flourishing. So while, while I don't know if we're ready to, to canonize a particular form of government, I don't think that would, that would be, uh, that'd be overstepping. I think we can say that we have great opportunities within the democracy of the United States. Our second question is, Your Excellency, what is one virtue you believe lay Catholics should be cultivating in particular right now as we see the, their, as we see their, sorry, I'm having trouble reading the script, religious liberty growing in American society? So, so a virtue to help us cultivate religious liberty in our... Yeah, um, See if this fits. When I, when I talk in Louisville, I talk about the four C's. And the, it used to be the three C's. The three C's were uh, courage, compassion, and civility. And Real, I think... I'm, sorry, actually, I, I can see what the, the two words are, so I just want to repeat the question. Sure. What is one virtue you believe lay Catholics should be cultivating, in particular right now, as we see threats to our religious liberty growing in American society. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, let me mention those three things again. Uh, courage, compassion, and civility. Uh, which, which is the one that, that is, 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 is hurting us? Well, uh, among people of faith, perhaps courage, having the ability to be able to get up and articulate what, what you believe in. Certainly civility. Because we live in a nation, and I think it, it relates to the first point I was making, necessarily that when you think that, that power rules, then you can simply shout down your opponent. But when you are seeking the truth, then it requires civility for you to enter into a dialogue in which you don't kind of uh, check your values and your convictions at the door but you bring your passions with you, but in a humble capacity to be able to listen. And, and I think uh, the notion of compassion is uh, if we are going to listen to other people, uh, they talk about um, who is the person about walking in the shoes of another person. I think there's, there's a lot to that, that I will 
when I enter into a dialogue, want to go there with my convictions, but with a capacity to try to understand a little more what, what that person who may oppose me is saying, rather than make them a caricature. So I would, I know you said one virtue. Uh, I gave three, and I'm about to give one more. And the fourth one that I'm, I'm giving is, is calm. I just did an article talking about the crisis within the church, and I said, you know, uh, irrational rage gets us to, put, to look at something that maybe we otherwise would ignore. But when a fire is going on, you look for the calm voice to lead you to safety. We need both. And so uh, they, they would be, let's make that four C's, that's one virtue, courage, compassion, civility, and calm. Thank you. Um, regarding the search for truth, do you think the church's sex abuse problem is primarily a problem of child abuse or, as Archbishop Viagano alleges, a broader sexual depravity that is fueled by a desire to change church, church teaching and the natural law? Well, uh, short answer to that is I think um, I'm here to listen, too, to, to your insights as far as I don't want to come here saying I have the answer with regard to the problem of, of uh, let's say, the crisis, the scandal, and it's a wide scandal within our church today. Um, I think the notion of, of the abuse of children, in, in my, at least in Louisville, in the last 15 years, I think our schools are safe. I think, however, the scandal has brought out uh, the depth of the effect that abuse has, whether it's now or 70 years ago. And I think that's part of having to listen. Um, I secondly think that we don't hear enough about the call for chastity. You can read, you can go long and hard in these debates, and I, I try to read everything. And you have to go really to the 18th paragraph to have somebody talk about the call for chastity. But what, it's, it's, a, it's a necessary thing. And I think the second thing or the, the third thing that it would be a part of it would be um, this question that, that's a, involved with the, uh, the Archbishop McCarrick situation is, is the abuse of power. Now, we often say that with many issues of child abuse, there is within that an abuse of power, that someone has a, has a powerful hold over someone either because of what their position is or their responsibility. And that's true, too, of course, in, in family situations where there's abuse. Um, so, so I would get that. And I guess the fourth one, can I give one fourth one then? Um, would be the way in which we're handling issues concerning bishops. I mean, I, I, I favor um, putting in place that the, the charter of 15 years ago was not perfect. I get it. I know that. We, it's not, but you have to build on something. And I would say that, that a bishop accountability has to have, some of, have the same elements. That if you have a, a complaint about something I did, either that you think I was impure or, or unchaste, or you think I, I violated somebody's, uh, uh, I didn't protect somebody because of my actions, there needs to be a clear place, as there is not right now with the, with the charter, in, in, in saying to the bishops, this is how it has to be handled. In this case, of course, it would have to be the Vatican. That's a long answer. I'm sorry to do that. Oh, no, please. That's wonderful. Thank you. You may be familiar with the Mortara case. In the 19th century, the Pope took a child who had been baptized from his Jewish parents so that he could be raised Catholic. The child grew up to become a priest. Did this undermine religious liberty? Huh. Well, uh, I, I am, I'm not familiar. I haven't read too much about it. Um, if, if someone is, is taken and, and a, a religion is imposed on that person, uh, that would be a violation. However, let, I don't know all the circumstances in that. Certainly, I, I don't agree that, that parents who have their child baptized are violating religious liberty. So I, I think it has to do with what was that relationship, what happened in that case where the parents no longer had responsibility for that child. And, and I must admit that I don't know all the details of it, but I think, I think the architecture of the answer 
would be to say uh, parents have a grave responsibility for their child. That's the vision of family. That's not taking religious liberty away when you try to build up in, in, your, in your family and in your child a sense of character and, 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 and uh, cultivate faith. Uh, when that is imposed after the age of reason and when, uh, when someone is not uh, invited but rather required, uh, they used to talk about rice Christians, people who became Christians because they were being fed things. That's not a, that's not a permanent way anyway to, to get people. So I'm sorry I have to evade that because I don't know all the details of, of what exactly happened there that would, would have violated the, the uh, religious liberty. Yeah. Maybe at the break somebody could tell me a little more and I'd learn a little bit about it. Your Excellency, you were ordained bishop by Archbishop Montalavo who was ordained bishop by B Blessed Paul VI to be canonized next month. Would you share your reflections about Paul's canonization at this particular moment? Wow, about uh, Paul VI canonization. Well, the answer is yes, I will. <laughs> now, 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 now I have to think about the reflections, though, because uh, with all the, the things I'm swimming in, uh, I think that's, that's calling for... Uh, some work in my holy hour tomorrow morning. Um, I, I think I have in the last, let's say the last uh, six years or so, grown more deeply in my admiration of Paul VI. I think, first of all, I've, I've read a little more uh, of, uh, of his, his work on uh, the, the, the Evangelii Annunciandi. Um, I, I've always admired, even though it was difficult, his courage in Humani Vitae. Uh, but I think as I'm, as I'm listening more to it, he was so quiet. I, at least that was my impression. He was the, the bishop, uh, the pope when I was ordained a priest. He was quiet. I didn't get into his personality as much as I guess I got into St. John Paul II. So um, uh, my reflections would be one of, of the issue of, of saints, maybe, that we have within the life of our, uh, of our, our, our spiritual lives. And uh, I see uh, Dominican Father Pine is here, so I can tell you less about Pope Paul, but more about the book I got when I was in seventh grade from my sister Rosemary at Christmas time. And in seventh grade, I didn't have a clue of what God's plan was for me. But I got the book, St. Dominic and the Holy Rosary. I still have it. And I still read it. And, I, and I, I don't know if you have a book that you read when you were in grade school. But as I was reading it, it kind of felt like I was back in grade school. I don't know exactly how to explain that to you, but it came back to me. I think part of it was my handwriting. I guess I put my name into everything I owned at that time. And so my, my handwriting was there that reminded me of that. Um, but the notion of being close to a saint, you, you, you have it in your society with, with Thomas More. I hope that I'll be able to do that with Paul VI. Uh, the biography I read of Paul VI was not one of a saint. It was it was kind of all the intrigue, and I forget who wrote it, but but it was it was it was all the all the conspiracies or whatever that are laid out that we read, and they're important to read too. That's part of the truth. But I, I guess I'm looking forward to maybe learning more about his spiritual life, the way I did uh, with uh, Saint uh, John the Twenty Third with the journey Journal of a Soul. I remember reading that in the seminary. That was a, that was a good one. Or really, uh, Saint John Paul the Second with. Uh, with his gift and mystery when he, he wrote that, that book on his 50th anniversary as a, as a priest. That's a beautiful, beautiful book. So I, I guess I need to, to have access a little more to Paul VI's spirituality, and I don't have that yet. You gave me some homework. What if the state becomes increasingly hostile towards the church in matters of religious liberty? If the church were to withdraw from medical fields, child care, and under other uh, social outreach, it, would that be not seen as a retreat? What can be done to stop this? Yeah, well, well we're not, uh, we're tempted to think that, that whatever we have been doing is what we'll always be doing, or even worse, that's what we always have been doing. So I think we need a healthy dose of, of history. I think we have to know how the church has adapted. The church, uh, even in the midst of, of often terrible 
uh, persecutions was the one who began, really, I, I think it gets more credit than I believe Oxford, but maybe I'll get a debate on this, uh, with the beginning of the university. I think the beginning of hospital. Now, um, being in social service, is it better to have a social serve a Catholic social service agency that has lost its Catholic moorings or not? I, I don't want a, a Catholic agency that doesn't isn't Catholic. So, so if 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 the drift is such, when I was in, involved with Catholic charities, uh, it was a partnership. If it ceases to be a partnership, uh, then I don't. I think it's better not to put the name Catholic on something and to find a new way to go forward. For uh, I think Tulsa, for example. Now, of course, I guess it helps to have a few oil. What do you call those oil mines or oil fields or whatever you call them? Uh, oil wells. Uh, they have some funding, but they, they they have not taken any government funding out in Tulsa for their Catholic charities and deliberately to be able to maintain their Catholic identity. So I, I, think, uh, I think we're going to work hard. I don't think we, we, we should be shy. I mean, I just called the, the Senator McConnell this afternoon and, and talked to his, his uh, chief assistant on the uh, Conscience Protection Act. You probably know something about that with, uh, with the issue of, uh, of someone being able, a, a lay person, a, a, somebody in the field of, of the medical area who cannot should not be able to, in conscience, be forced to participate in the procedure of an abortion. Right now, the law is very weak on that. And so I, I don't know if we're going to win. It's, a, it's part of a, an appropriations fight that's going on today and tomorrow in Congress. So I think we, we should not simply lay back and roll over. But I, I think we have to constantly look at, at the outcome. Is, is what we're doing part of the mission of the church? And if it isn't, then we have to restructure it. Uh, I have a follow-up question to that. Do you think the church um, could be put in a position of losing its tax-exempt status if our social outreach programs were to be drastically draw, uh, drawn back because of religious liberty issues? I'll say that again. You, 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 you think we'd lose the religious, the, the tax-exemption status. Mm-hmm. I don't think the, ta- the tax-exemption status is, is not based on the service I don't think it's based on the service we provide to the, to the community. If it were based on that, then other religions that have, uh, don't have a robust effort would then be therefore not tax-exempt. No, I, I think it's based on the special acknowledgement of the role that faith has in the life of a nation. And so I'd have to research that a little more, but I don't, I don't think it is. I think what could happen is as we have a more individualistic understanding of faith, my first point, what can happen then is people will say, well, you're on your own. You're not, you're not contributing to the nation, so uh, you're going to have to pay taxes. Yeah. Had you heard anything about McCarrick's misconduct before it all came out, and do you believe the claims in archbishops Vigano's letters are true, particularly in regard to Pope Francis' lifting of the sanctions on, Arch- on Cardinal McCarrick. Okay. First thing, I, I, had, I didn't have a clue. And I'm, I'm not bragging about that. I'm trying to think, what am I, just naive? So, no, I, I didn't know. And in fact, uh, Archbishop McCarrick came, I remember, came to um, when we had the 200th anniversary in Louisville, right when I came to Louisville, it was 2008. You may remember that Baltimore became a, was 200 years as an archdiocese, and Pope Benedict came to the United States. He came, and um, no, I didn't have a clue. Um, with regard to to um, Archbishop Vigano, and you probably know I worked with him as, as when I was the president of the Bishops' Conference. Um, I take a, 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 a much more basic view. I take the view of uh, if there's a whistleblower, you look at the evidence. You don't start to challenge that. Because I, I, I'm not sure his letter, 11 pages, all has the same level of evidence. And, I, and I'd, hate that, I'd, I'd hate that not to be a distraction. I'd rather have us say, no, let's focus on what his main point was here. And let's not give up on, on really needing needing to base things on truth as we move forward with regard to how did that'd be my question how did it happen that 
that uh, if, if, if all these things are true, and there's no reason for me to think they're not, I know there's going to be a canonical trial, as I understand it. Now, they'll give a chance for, a, for them to, to do what everybody deserves. But I'm not hearing anybody say that these things are not true. There's just too many witnesses to this. Um, how did it happen? And, and uh, I guess the logical question would be, is, ha, is it happening anyplace else? So, I mean, I, they would be my questions, you know, and, and what makes it worse, I mean, it's bad enough if you're, a, if you're a lay person involved, but what if you're a bishop trying to figure it out? So, no, I, I, I'm as outraged as you are and, and hoping that, that uh, you, well, you probably know that Cardinal DiNardo is meeting with, uh, with the Holy Father uh, tomorrow uh, at noon Rome time. So we're, we're hoping that, that there will be some answers to what was brought up. Am I using up too much of my time? No, you're fine. You're okay, fine. good. Um, we have uh, two more questions left. Okay. Uh, what concrete actions ought the average Catholic take to protect and promote religious liberty? Wow. Uh, well, you're going to get tired of, 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 of me saying to pray because I, I know that we always say that you're supposed to pray. But, but to be very honest with you, uh, I think prayer and study, the, the prayer and study go together because there's a certain way if, if it's not a prayerful thing, all the things you may be reading might be the wrong things. In other words, if, all, if your only source of income is one news station, I'd say, you know, broaden, broaden your view on things and, and begin to read, begin to, to uh, understand and be articulate on the basis of where, why religious freedom is so important. Uh, study, for example, Dignitatis Humanae. It's not a long document, and it's a good document to read. It's easy to understand. So, and find a way, to, however you learn, to be able to deepen your understanding. And then, of course, the second thing would be that gets into the four Cs. You know, what is your way of, of influencing other people? Because we can't just sit back and say, well, this is a job for someone else to do. You know that that doesn't work. If there's something important, that means every one of us has a responsibility to influence someone, and there's someone in your life that even if I wanted to, I couldn't get to. They, I, I'm not credible to them, whereas you might be. So that's the way I would go with that. Um, most of us are pretty aware that there are religious liberty uh, challenges um, outside of the United States. So what can U.S. Catholics do to help persecuted Catholics and Christians abroad? Well, let's begin with, with the knowledge because um, we're not good as a nation with reporting these things. That's one of the reasons I mentioned it. Now, I, I will say this, that, that America Magazine this week has a two-page article, and the article is pretty good. Uh, I think I actually cut it out, and I have it here. So uh, if any of you want to look at it. But it gives a map of, of where there is a crisis in religious liberty. And when you look at that map, you'll see uh, nations that are not flourishing, the things that I talked about earlier. So I would say that's one way. Now, there's, there's various people who are doing things. The Knights of Columbus are doing some good work. Uh, look into the work that the Knights of Columbus are doing. I was just on... Monday night, we had our meeting over at the John Paul II Center. And so you know where that is, right by Catholic University. Go over there, and if you, you probably know it better than I do. I'm giving you instructions. Uh, uh, talk to some of the people there about the work they're doing internationally, and especially for, for Christians, but they're also doing, doing work, um, and Catholic Relief Services is doing, is doing work also. But I think especially the Knights of Columbus would be a good, good organization to, to look into. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you.